News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about civil forfeiture in this province. It has been a tool that, well, successive governments have used to go after people, to go after things, but essentially where criminal proceedings might not have been successful, they have found civil forfeiture to work. Well, let's talk about the case of a Richmond gym owner in particular. Hasn't been charged with any criminal offense. There have been years-long police investigations, but now there's a civil forfeiture lawsuit to go after some real estate worth about $10 million. For more on this, we turn to Sam Cooper, Global National Investigative Reporter. Hi, Sam. Good morning, Cindy. What do we know about this particular case? What do we know about this this Paul Jin? Well, the most recent um, civil case filed against Paul Jin points to a number of uh, police investigations that, as you say, have been going on for years. This started with uh, the RCMP trying to look in the, into this international triad money laundering bank in Richmond called Silver International. I've reported it was estimated to be laundering about a billion years annually through BC casinos involving real estate. This is for the globe, uh, the world's leading drug cartels, allegedly. So in this latest case, the government is trying to seize 10 apartment units in one building uh, in Vancouver, allegedly owned by uh, Mr. Jin, who is a notorious elite loan shark. That's on the record. He admits to being a loan shark in this casino activity. And so uh, it's it really points to a lot of the. Uh, uh, the evidence that was hinted at at the Cullen Commission and really that I've reported on more thoroughly, and that is that a company incorporated in China with an address in Hong Kong was used to to, uh, take out mortgages against 14 properties in B.C. in this most recent civil case. Uh, Jin's relative owned a B.C. company that initially bought these properties, and so uh, the B.C. government uh, is trying to take uh, what they say is uh, really a a vehicle to transfer money from China uh, into Canada and back to extort casino borrowers uh, to run illegal casinos and all this activity that's the subject of so far unsuccessful uh, police investigations which the BC Prosecution Service is sitting on and another federal prosecution fell apart as we know. Hmm. Okay so in your experience of stories that you've covered things that you have seen is this the way that governments often do this is that they try civil forfeiture if the criminal proceedings aren't perhaps as successful? Well, that, that's becoming a big issue in British Columbia, and really that was also a, a subject of the Cullen Commission. What we see are these major cases against what are said to be uh, international organized crime falling apart in Canada. And we heard evidence from uh, from former police officers in the Cullen Commission that, that said Canadian police are really fighting an uphill battle against uh, getting uh, cases uh, prosecuted. They have a lot of difficulty with uh, disclosing all mountains of evidence. Really, uh, they argue because defense lawyers and criminal defense lawyers have a much easier time uh, in in sort of uh, making cases fall apart by 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 getting the ability to look at so much evidence that police are really scared to disclose uh, uh, information in cases. So you're right. We have seen that civil forfeiture is now being used 
as a backup tool to go after uh, what are alleged to be international criminals. And yet it's really not that successful in itself. Uh, In both cases, criminal and civil cases, uh, what I hear from uh, law enforcement experts is Canada's Charter of Rights. It really is a powerful tool for uh, criminal defense lawyers. So that was going to be my next question then. Is civil forfeiture more successful than criminal proceedings? But it sounds like it's 50-50. Uh, it's 50-50, and when you consider that, that we now know, uh, as as uh, Commissioner Cullen said, Vancouver is just a tremendous, uh, is being used by sophisticated international criminals to do tremendous amounts of money laundering. And so you would think that there's really tens, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of proceeds that should be targeted, but it's really only a drop in the bucket that uh, the government is going after against the most notorious uh, gangsters, and they're not achieving uh, very much. We have now four cases against Mr. Jin over a number of years in this on this civil file, and none of them have really proceeded yet, and yet we still have these cases mounting up. And Simi and other, uh, the, the, there's big issues to look at at why the BC Prosecution Service hasn't moved forward uh, in this second latest uh, in investigation into money laundering with Mr. Jin and his associates. Uh, you you know, the issues that I'm aware of that could be holding it up. We and we now have two uh, suspects and potential witnesses in these cases that have been murdered, one in Colombia, one in Richmond, B.C. We have any number of highly powerful sort of uh, officials with connections to China circling these cases. We have people that may be facing deportation. There's just a whack of issues that could be holding up the criminal prosecutions in addition to these weak laws in Canada I'm talking about. Right. Okay. So that's holding up prosecution because as you pointed out, this has been sitting with the BC Prosecution Service since about 2017, if not sooner. Um, And in the meantime, then Sam, is it business as usual for the people involved in this case? Uh, what I hear, Simi, is it's absolutely business as as usual. Look, uh, I reported recently in, in, in an update of a book I wrote on the subject, Mr. Jin had, was involved in the Cullen Commission. Uh, he had a lawyer arguing for him successfully, it looks like. And uh, while this was happening, he was traveling to Mexico, Colombia, and Panama. He was arrested uh, in March 2022 in Panama with a fake Mexican passport. So these are countries that are at the center of this alleged international drug money laundering activity connected to these cases. And uh, Mr. Jin appears to have no fear or respect for for the Canadian law. So uh, not much is getting done at all. It doesn't sound like it at all. Sam, thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Thanks, Simi. Appreciate for uh, you for pointing all that out to us. At Sam Cooper, global national investigative reporter, talking about this, you know, alleged money laundering case where no charges have been filed criminally, but the government again is trying to go after somebody in a civil forfeiture lawsuit, valued real estate that is valued at about ten million dollars is at the center of this. But as Sam points out, still so many holes. We feel like we have learned so much about money laundering in our province, and yet we still have such a long way to go. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk some hockey this morning. Yes, the World Juniors are going on. I'd asked you this morning if you were paying attention to it. A lot of empty seats that we see there. Part of that could be that it's, you know, the World Juniors in August, which is not when people are used to it. 
But part of it, I think, is also the fact that Hockey Canada has continually been in the headlines recently for good reason. And a lot of people are thinking about these World Juniors tournaments and what happened at previous tournaments. Well, there is a new piece in the Globe and Mail that you should be checking out if you've been following this story this morning. And this has to do with Hockey Canada's board of directors and the grades they received from Sport Canada in an internal governance review. Let's get the details on this. Grant Robertson joins us now, Globe and Mail senior writer. Grant, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. This is another great story that you guys have been doing in the Globe and Mail about this case. So what happened here? So what is Sport Canada, first of all? Well, Sport Canada is the arm of the federal government that funds Canada's sports organizations. And there's about, um, there's more than 60 of them, and Hockey Canada is one of them. So uh, they're, the, they're the government body that funds Hockey Canada, gives them some of, some of its money. It's about 6% of the budget. And what we saw um, this week is in documents that Sports Canada had done a Sport Canada had done a governance review of Hockey Canada, basically a report card on their board of directors, and the uh, the grades were not very good. Okay, so is this something that they do periodically? Is this a regular review that happens? It isn't. It's something that they did in uh, started in 2021, and just to get a sense of what the governance was like across all of the sports organizations in in Canada. So this would be. Soccer Canada, Volleyball Canada, Hockey Canada, all of these organizations. And what they found was there were governance problems uh, across many of them. The average scores that we see in these report cards are very low. Uh, And in Hockey Canada's case, they scored extremely low. Uh, It's marked out of five. Uh, They they got a one out of five for conflicts of interest and their ability to manage and mitigate conflicts of interest. Now, what that means is the board of directors uh, is is it, it, it's got a problem that you know if if it was in the business community or in a you know a nonprofit organization these would be serious concerns about mm-hmm. about conflicts uh, that they're that they're not managing correctly and they also have scored low in um, in another category which was called strategic planning but what it looked at was you know the the ability to, um, you know, foresee problems and deal with those. And really, you know, what these scores sort of show is now with Hockey Canada basically under criticism for its handling of sexual assault allegations in the past, these scores seem to indicate the very things that the government is now really concerned about with Hockey Canada's leadership. So what happened as a result of that governance review? Well, it's interesting. It also calls into question Sport Canada's oversight of of Hockey Canada, because from what we can tell, not a lot. Um, There was an initial report card done in 2021, and interestingly about that is Hockey Canada was able to come back and argue some of its scores should be higher. And so they brought forward more information. We don't know what that is, but they, they were able to raise some of their scores. The two key scores I just mentioned stayed low in, in a second report card that was issued early this year. Uh, but in terms of, you know, sort of any sort of, you know, orders to improve the board or to clamp down, that, that hasn't happened. It, it shows that Sport Canada knew the problem existed on the board, that they had, that their, the concerns we see now were, were evident previously, but any evidence that, that uh, Sport Canada, you know, 
required any any significant changes, it, it doesn't appear to have happened. Oh boy. Well, I look forward to the follow-up to this, Grant. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. That's Grant Robertson, Globe and Mail senior writer. Check out his latest piece in the Globe and Mail. It's about Hockey Canada and their governance review that was done by Sport Canada where they did not get good marks. And yet, you know what? It continues on. So what happens as a result of that? Keep reading their coverage. They've been doing a great job and keep listening here for the latest as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to tell you this morning about a story that Global News has learned about. It's a pretty concerning case. It involves a veteran who was inappropriately offered medical assistance in dying, not by a doctor, but by a federal government employee working for Veterans Canada. For more on this story now, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson is with us, and she is breaking that story this morning. Mercedes, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. What can you tell us about this case? So I'll start by telling your listeners and sharing with them that we have uh, verified everything I'm about to tell you happened through multiple sources, including Veterans Affairs Canada. Um, So there is a veteran who is a combat veteran, served Canada, and as a result sustained significant injuries, both uh, traumatic brain injury, which has been medically documented, as well as a post-traumatic stress disorder injury um, as a result of his experiences in war zones. Um, this individual called up Veterans Affairs Canada, as veterans do every day, looking for help and treatment in regards to his PTSD and his traumatic brain injury. And while discussing that, sources tell us that the Veterans Affairs employee on the other end of the phone offered him medically assisted dying. Uh, that is not something Veterans Affairs is supposed to be raising with a veteran who has not asked for it, who has not raised it. And even if they do, it's then supposed to be deferred to their doctor or their psychologist or psychiatrist to have that discussion, not a bureaucrat who is untrained in this. Um, We are told by sources close to this veteran that he was absolutely shocked by this um, and very, very upset, as you can imagine, um, when you've served your country and sustained significant injuries and you're looking to try to get treated and get better and you're told well perhaps another option would be medical assistance and death um, there's a real sense of betrayal in the veterans community and anger and fear concern about this potentially happening to other veterans whether it already has happened to other veterans and while there are checks and balances in place before medical assistance Uh, assisted dying can happen in Canada. The fear is from a lot in the veterans community that this could tip vulnerable veterans, veterans who have mental health challenges, mental health injuries as a result of their service. Um, It is not uncommon for there to be suicidal ideation in some of those cases. uh, And people are very concerned about the rate of of veterans um, suicides in Canada being offered this out of the blue could be highly destabilizing. Um, and there's really concern about just how frequently this may have happened. We are only aware of this one particular case that we've been able to track down uh, and, and prove, in fact, uh, unfolded as it's being described to us. But there's concern about whether this, this could be happening to other veterans who could be vulnerable. It is just, you know, I was shaking my head the entire time because you just can't believe this happened. So what did this person do? What did this former soldier do then right away when he heard that? Well, we're told that this uh, individual called Veterans Affairs and lodged complaints immediately 
out of concern for other veterans saying, you know, if, if this is happening to this individual, is it happening to someone else? This is totally inappropriate. I am not looking to end my own life in any way. I want to get better. I have a, a long life ahead of me. This is someone who is relatively young. Um, and after that, Veterans Affairs issued multiple apologies to this individual. They told us they're aware that an inappropriate conversation around medically assisted dying took place, that they regret the harm it caused to this veteran and to his family, um, that they are looking into this and investigating, but they wouldn't tell us what that investigation has found. They also said there will be administrative action taken against the person who made this offer, but they wouldn't tell us what that looked like either, citing privacy concerns. They wouldn't answer questions about how many veterans might have been offered this by this individual or by others unprompted and inappropriately. They wouldn't answer questions about how many veterans may have um, accessed uh, medically assisted dying through Veterans Affairs Canada. It's not a service they offer, but they will connect people who are looking for that. Uh, and they wouldn't answer questions about what kind of guidance is given when discussing this. But essentially, it's not something that any bureaucrat, in, and they say this themselves, should be bringing up on the phone. They're simply not qualified. Um, and it's a very, very serious issue that you are talking about with a potentially very vulnerable population. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. They're not medical professionals. They're, they're there to offer the services of Veterans Canada, are they not? Exactly. They're supposed to be helping with things like claims and telling you what yeah. your options are. So in this case, if a veteran calls and says, I'd like to have my PTSD or my TBI treated, they're supposed to say, okay, let's gather some information on that. Here's what we have on the file. Here are your options and forms of treatment. You go to this clinic to be treated or this clinic to be treated. They're not supposed to be offering ever uh, medical assistance in dying unless the veteran requests that. And even then, that request then has to go through to an actual medical professional to talk about this with the veteran, not a bureaucrat who's supposed to be helping them process their claims. Okay, so then what happens now then? What's the reaction of the government been to this, Mercedes? Well, right now we only have the reaction from VAC. We're just breaking the story this morning, so uh, we don't have an answer from the Veterans Minister yet. But as you can imagine, we are seeking that this morning and asking what the government is going to do about this um, and what transparency they're going to ensure that Veterans Affairs provides to veterans um, to assure them and rebuild their trust that this is not something that is happening in other cases, as well as to make sure that it doesn't happen again in the future, uh, which is really why a lot of the veterans who I've spoken to approached us and talked to us. They're really concerned about this happening to other people, uh, and they want to make sure that Canadians know this is what's happening because there's a very deep sense of betrayal that they've served their country and that someone looking for help was offering something that they did not want, they were not looking for, and that potentially could be harmful to them to even bring up. What a story. All right, Mercedes, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Now, for more on that story, you can check out globalnews.ca. It will be published there this morning. And as well, you can uh, see Mercedes talking about this story on Global National this evening. But that is a shocker. It's one of those stories where you're just shaking your head going, what? What were they thinking? What was that person thinking, making those kinds of suggestions? So, yeah, that is a shocker. Uh, More from Mercedes Stevenson. Check out globalnews.ca. 
This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's take a look at what's going on with our salmon situation. We've been talking a bit about this over the last few weeks because there are some, well, some good news areas to point out. For instance, that massive rock slide that happened along the Fraser, what, just not that long ago, actually, caused a lot of problems for migrating sockeye and Chinook salmon. And there was a lot of work that was being done by different groups to try to make sure salmon could still get through. Three years ago, barely 100 fish were counted for the entire season. This year, though, the most recent salmon numbers from August the 9th pegged almost 300,000 Chinook and Sockeye at an area that is just 40 kilometers or so past the slide site. So what is going on? Does that mean the efforts worked? Well, joining us is Greg Taylor, a fishery advisor for Watershed Watch Salmon Society. Greg, thanks for being here. Yes, uh, welcome. It's uh, nice to join you. And uh, yes, isn't that wonderful news? It it is. uh, Yeah. So tell me, is is this great news? Like, how did this happen? Well, what happened is something happened out in the ocean that was uh, really increased the productivity of those uh, salmon stocks returning to the upper Fraser. And uh, it's... uh, it seems to be related to something good that's happened for sockeye from Bristol Bay, way north of the Aleutians, all the way down to the Columbia River. Uh, most uh, sockeye populations have done exceedingly well, and um, so and those populations have benefited from it. So that, in combination with the amazing work done by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and lots of other uh, groups, including the First Nations in the area, to immediate the impacts of the slide has um, allowed that we've got this, you know, unique abundance. Like you said, it was only last year that we were thinking these populations could wink out, that they could be, we could be facing ex- extermination, uh, extinction on these populations. And yet here we are this year. It just shows the resilience of salmon if we give them a chance. If we give them a chance, that's the key there. So before we talk about the other factors too, what kind of, can you tell us about the work that was done at the site to try to fix the situation? As you said, there were a number of different groups that got involved here. Well, it was a a massive engineering uh, site. It's in a very isolated part of the Fraser River Canyon. Uh, Think of it a a very difficult corner at the best of times, no roads, no access, had to build roads, had to go in there. And and what happens is a whole slide uh, slumped off um, the bank of the Fraser River, filling the the river with huge rocks, creating an impenetrable a blockage at certain water levels. All that had to be remained removed uh, as much as possible, and uh, and uh, natural fish, fishways built amazing uh, um, engineering feat. Along with that, there's been lots of efforts to move fish above the side slide, and for those populations that suffered, there's a conservation hatchery programs created. Amazing work and collaboration that shows what people can do when they. They love salmon and, and want to make sure they survive. It really is. It just sounds like such a Herculean effort that kind of went on to do this. Was this something that we that we learned as we were doing it? Was this a new situation, Greg, that groups found themselves in? Oh, certainly new to uh, to us uh, as uh, you know, recent occupants occupants of the Fraser uh, watershed. Uh, but Fraser watershed experienced these slides uh, numerous times. I mean, the famous Hell's Lake slide, a Hell's, Can- a Hell's Gate Canyon slide, and 
1913, but there's been series of slides in the Fraser, but this is the most major one in the in recent memory and recent history. And uh, it was just just lucky that I think we had the right minister and uh, fisheries at the right time who's willing just to blow back all reservations and all the bureaucratic roadblocks and just make this recovery happen. Now, one thing I want to guard against is that it hasn't been fixed. I mean, right. it has been mediated for certain water levels. So there was a significant blockage with the high water levels in the Fraser earlier this year because of our late spring. So a lot of time, these fish were, were a lot of these fish were held up for a significant, significant length of time, which means that um, salmon have a clock. And they need to be on the spawning grounds and they need to spawn within a very, very short time range. So the jury's still out if we're going to get uh, successful spawning of all these fish. We're certainly hoping so and and, um, believe that the most hopefully will. But that is the next check to make sure that those fish that we're seeing now actually successfully spawned. Okay, and you talked about the other factors too, because yeah, there have been some great salmon runs that we have been hearing about. So is this just one of those years? Well, it's certainly one of those years for uh, for sockeye, but it's not unexpected. I mean, all of us that shivered in our sweaters through May and June and complained about the weather, well, that was a result of the second year of uh, La Nina. Uh, our Pacific waters, uh, North Pacific waters have been cooling, and these factors are very beneficial to salmon. And so I think what we're seeing, and most experts right now are, are because, you know, it's basin-wide, it's from northern Alaska down to Columbia, that we're seeing these uh, recovery. It's to do with ocean conditions. What is fascinating, though, is the one place we're not seeing that translate, even though we're talking about the Fraser right now, we're talking about a very small part of the Fraser. The Fraser River as a whole does not seem to be seen uh, to having the same benefits as all those other salmon populations. I mean, Barkley Sound was double. The Skeena is double. Um, down in the Columbia, it's much larger. Bristol Bay was off the charts large. Um, Copper River in Alaska. All these runs have done very, very well. And yet, here we saw the early summer timing group of the Fraser River. They've cut mm-hmm. that back from uh, 50%. Uh, uh, average what they forecast to maybe half a forecast in the summers and late timing groups um, boy the test fishing doesn't indicate very good so mm. it raises questions in your mind about okay why is, a, why yeah. is a, all these populations in the phrase are different from everywhere else all right still more questions all right greg thank you so much for your time this morning oh yeah uh, it was pleasant talking to you thank yeah, you very much appreciate that Bye-bye. that's greg taylor fishery advisor for watershed watch salmon society so as he pointed out there's a lot of good news still some questions though too about some of the salmon runs in our province if you want to weigh in simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi well we know what patola bridge is coming a new one but is it going to be big enough Well, the Surrey Board of Trade doesn't think so. They would like to see it even bigger at six lanes. In fact, they have formally made a new request to the provincial government for that. And joining us now to talk more about it is Anita Hupperman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. So we know there is going to be a new bridge. Is is it too far along at this point, Anita, to say, hey, we need it to be bigger? No, because from the very beginning, 
the BC government has said that it does have the capacity to open with six lanes, but they've made a decision to open it with four lanes eventually when it's built, projected to open in 2024. Uh, but uh, maybe later, as we know, with construction projects, they're always delayed. Okay, so why do you feel that that bridge needs six lanes? Well, number one, Surrey continues to grow by 1,200, 1,400 people a month. We have uh, projected another 1.3 million people that are moving into Metro Vancouver uh, by 2040. And we need to ensure that we're planning for transportation infrastructure for the future, not for yesterday. This is an old bridge. Uh, We've needed to certainly reconstruct it because it is unsafe. Uh, But how does it make sense when you are replacing a four-lane bridge with another four-lane bridge in the face of continued population growth and lack of transit and transportation options to get around? But can it support that, though? I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, on the other side of that bridge is New Westminster. If you increase the size of that bridge, can that community take the increased flow of traffic? The city of New Westminster, in partnership with the B.C. government, needs to have a serious conversation about looking at enhancing arterial roadways to accommodate an additional two lanes on that bridge. I have spoken with Mayor Cote in the past, certainly, the uh, mayor of New Westminster, and, uh, and, and he does have a position saying that they want that bridge to open with four lanes. But we need to start looking at this from an economic uh, lens. Transportation is the foundation of our economy. We need to move our people. There are ways and means to move people, even on the New Westminster side. What would you suggest, though? Because I'm looking at I'm thinking there's houses. It's pretty narrow. Like, how do you expand that on the New Westminster side? I don't have the answer to that, but there are ways and means to do it. When the B.C. government says that eventually that bridge will open with an additional two lanes, and we're asking the B.C. government, what is that trigger point, that decision that will ultimately make them open uh, it uh, with six lanes? Uh, That's the new question, Um, but certainly uh, I don't have the answer to what can happen in the city of New Westminster in terms of additional arterial roadways uh, to accommodate that additional traffic. But there, um, there is a way, there, there needs to be a way. Uh, we need to think about how we're going to move people into the future in terms of around the Metro Vancouver area. Can the Surrey side support six lanes? Yes, we can. Uh, And certainly we have the land to be able to accommodate additional roadway networks. Um, The reality of the situation, Simeon, to your listeners, is that we need to be able to reduce the congestion. We're saying to people to move to uh, electric vehicles. That's still going to increase congestion. We're waiting for SkyTrain here in Surrey and uh, into the South Fraser area. That's not going to come until 2028 to 2030. So all we're saying is that uh, even with the Massey Tunnel, it's going to open uh, eventually with the same number of lanes. Uh, But continued population growth is something that the region, uh, that TransLink and that Metro Vancouver, uh, that the BC government 
if not preparing for. And we need to prepare for that population growth uh, with dialogue with uh, with the city of New Westminster to accommodate uh, additional traffic. So since you made this call, Anita, what kind of response have you gotten? Nothing yet. We sent the letter on Friday, uh, but this has been a continued call by the Surrey Board of Trade since the beginning of the announcement that there will be a new Patello Bridge. And uh, for some reason, um, you know, I I know that the B.C. government wants to get people out of their cars. They want people to walk, uh, to use the the bicycle infrastructure that's going to be uh, on that bridge uh, when it is built. But uh, only so many are going to be able to use those options. Uh, So we're waiting for uh, to hear from the B.C. government. All right, we'll see what happens. Uh, Anita, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Anita Haberman is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. They are advocating to see an expansion of the size of the Patola Bridge. So not just opening with four lanes, as the government in New Westminster has said will happen, but they, the Surrey side of things, they would like to see a six-lane bridge open uh, when that bridge is finally there for public use. It's supposed to open in 2024. Now, that's tough, right? Because the Surrey side of things... I mean, that when you look at where the Patola Bridge and, you know, the, the ramp is, you think, OK, well, yeah, they can support six lanes. But can they on the other side? New Westminster, clearly a different situation there where all the traffic gets funneled into a very residential area. And it's, you know, dispersing traffic from that point becomes very challenging. Surrey wants six lanes. New Westminster is saying, nope, that's too much. We can't really handle that right now. What about you? What do you think? Simi at cknw.com. For me, I can't believe after all these years, we're still talking about the Patilla Bridge. Like, why hasn't that thing been replaced already? Should have been replaced 30 years ago, and we're getting a new bridge now. What about the debate over the size of it? What do you think we need there? Let, it, let me know. Simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. We'll talk more about that coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. So where is it? Where is this medical school that has been talked about by the provincial government for the last couple of years? The wait is still there, right, for Simon Fraser University to develop this medical school that would potentially graduate more family doctors that we could get into the system. Is that what will help solve this problem so that when you go and you need a family doctor, you can actually find one? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is David May, president of the BC College of Family Physicians. Thank you for joining us. Good morning to you, Simi, and thank you so much for caring about the health of British Columbians. Oh, I care very deeply because it impacts all of us. Let me ask you then, how do we train more doctors? How do we get more doctors into the system? Well, um... I think the BC College is in philosophically behind the, the uh, SFU Medical School. Uh, it's about time BC stood up to the plate and actually produced something like the amount of doctors that we need. Um, but it's, um, it would be a mistake to say that this is actually going to affect the doctor's crisis right now. It uh, would take a minimum of six years, uh, even if the first uh, seats were taken this September for a family doctor to uh, be qualified, and even then they'd be a junior family doctor. So um, although we're definitely in favour of this new medical school, it's really not going to affect the doctor's crisis. Okay, so you are in favour of it then. What what should it look like in your opinion? How do we make a difference, even if it is long term? 
So uh, we make a difference by actually changing the environment in which family doctors work. Uh, the, uh, we have over 6,000 family doctors in BC, but uh, um, about half of those have been forced out of doing that longitudinal care, that relationship-based care that we, uh, we talk about, the, the traditional family doctor who knows you and knows your family, um, just simply because of the environment that, uh, that family doctors have to work in at the moment. Do we teach that, though? You talk about that relationship-based care. I know that you know going to medical school is incredibly challenging, and you're, you're teaching an awful lot of information, and then they have to decide their specialty and what they're doing. But do we take the time to talk about the benefits of, of being, say, a family doctor? One of the privileges that I get as the president of the BC College of Family Physicians is to listen to a whole lot of medical students and residents and I can tell you they are really smart dedicated people and they really get it that uh, importance of walking with your patients through the high and low times of their lives and sharing these uh, these uh, health crises with them and uh, medical students are really pumped up about wanting to do that specialty of family medicine um, and really the problem is in the environment in which they have to work now is just so hostile for family doctors. So what we really need to do is to change that environment to, uh, to make family medicine a more attractive uh, option and a more attractive specialty for uh, our medical students and residents to choose. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we make it more attractive? What's going to make a difference? So as you know, there's about a million uh, folks in BC who don't have a family doctor. And we've been doing research on this for years now and uh, talking and listening to family doctors uh, on the grassroots. And there's four major things. Family doctors are feeling underappreciated uh, by, their health, by the health authorities. Um, they don't, uh, often the Minister of Health never talks about family doctors. They talk about UPCCs and nurse practitioners, but never about family doctors. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the compensation model is just not working at the moment. You you know how much uh, rents have gone up in the last uh, 11 years. Uh, uh, the fee for a, a visit has gone up approximately $1 in the last 12 years. So uh, it, that's just not working at the moment. Um, the other other area is that the amount of work that family doctors have to do, a lot of it's paperwork and unnecessary stuff, but it's been downloaded onto family doctors. And the fourth thing would be involving family doctors in future planning for uh, the what future primary care looks like. So there's those four things. Um, and if they were taken on, we could actually attract a whole lot of the family doctors who are not doing that longitudinal relationship-based care back into that. And that would go a long way to solving the problem. How do we also change the mindset in the kind of medical schooling community too? And and I have a loved one who recently went to medical school. So I know that, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them to pick the quote unquote right specialty. And is family care seen as a popular choice or are, do these other ones have much more prestige? Um, certainly they uh, are much better um Financed. Um, there, there's no. There's no question that the, the, the average uh, medical student now is uh, graduating with somewhere between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollars of debt, and so with the um, economics of being a family doctor, it's very, very hard for them to pay that off. And there's lots of alternatives that they could choose in family medicine. But yes, I actually do think that uh, family medicine is 
um, a desirable specialty uh, for um, medical students and residents to do, if only it was if it was a uh, um, attractive enough for them financially and the uh, and as i said the uh, all that uh, work wasn't downloaded onto them and they didn't have uh, and they were had some ability to plan for the uh, right for the future of primary care so how many doctors uh, dr may do we need to do you think train up that would eventually make a difference into the system well at the moment we have about 6000 uh, family doctors in bc and only about a half of them are doing that longitudinal relationship-based care. So if we could change the environment right now, we could uh, lure some of those doctors straight back into family medicine. We could also stop the attrition of uh, senior family doctors like myself wanting to leave the uh, the profession. And um, that would uh, make it a more sustainable environment and make um, new graduates wanting uh, wanted to do that traditional longitudinal relationship based care. So, um, if we had that number of docs, we we would probably be okay. Um, it's certainly BC is an attractive place for people to move to, and uh, that's that's certainly what's what's happening at the moment. I don't think we we could probably get into a numbers game with the uh, the actual medical right. school itself. Uh, and you're thinking yourself about about leaving the profession? Certainly, it's been a really, really stressful uh, two two and a bit years, and that I don't need to tell you that, of course, how bad it's been. Um, myself, I have recently handed on my practice to another one of my colleagues. Luckily, I was I didn't have to leave my uh, patients in the lurch as uh, as orphan patients. So that, uh, and now what I'm doing is supporting my colleagues and doing locums. In the in my town of Power River, uh, to make our family practice sustainable, so they can actually get a break. So some right. of my colleagues were actually able to get a week's holiday this summer, because otherwise they, they there would have been no way they could leave their patients. The family doctors, unlike other doctors, are on call for their patients 24 hours a day, and so uh, it's it it can be pretty unsustainable unless you can get a break. It sounds like it. Well, Doctor May, thank you for talking to us this part this morning. You're very welcome, sorry. We appreciate that. That's Dr. David May, president of the BC College of Family Physicians, talking about the number of doctors, really, that we need to get into the system to make a difference. This is Mornings with Simi. 10,000 more people packed into a little area, 4.7 hectares, right around the south end of the Burrard Bridge. That is the new development that is now getting underway. Are we ready for it? How is it looking? Well, to talk more about that, we're joined by Wilson Williams, who's the spokesperson for the Squamish Nation, and they are well underway in getting this residential neighborhood up and running. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Now, let's talk about the, the what happened this week, because you kind of you really are getting things underway this week, aren't you? Yeah, things are uh, moving forward in a uh, more efficient way as we uh, set forth on the... Uh, <clears throat> the phase project. Okay. Phase project. Yeah. How how long has it taken to get to this point, Wilson? Oh, it's taken. Uh, I would say it's taken since uh, we won the uh, court case back in 2003. It's been a, a journey for our nation just to get reclaim the land, but also uh, most recently just with the. I would say within the recent four or five years, we've been working on plus. 
And how do you think the plans have changed since that time? Like, were there changes that had to be made? Uh, is it exactly how it was envisioned or is it a work in progress? Yeah, I think within a partnership and building good relations, you know, with the city of Vancouver in regards to our service agreement, which we recently signed in May and um, our partnership uh, with West Bank. And it's really come a long way in regards to meeting the needs of Vancouver, but uh, more importantly, meeting the needs of uh, the Squamish nation. All right. So we're talking 6,000 homes here, 10,000 people. Wilson, what's it going to look like? Yeah, it's going to look pretty uh, pretty innovative in regards to uh, green space. And, you know, 12,000 of those units, uh, or 1,200 of those units will be subsidized rental units. Um, we're going to be housing 500-plus nation members in the area, and it'll be the largest net-zero carbon residential project in Canada. And just for the record, it's the largest First Nations economic development project in, Canada, in Canadian history as well. So it's very innovative, but also, um, you know, we're living in a housing crisis, and, you know, we we're having minimal if we're looking at, you know, we're always worried today of too many cars on the road. It's going to be minimal parking spaces, but hell of a lot of uh, bike and bike and storage units uh, as well. Okay, so all those, as you pointed out, all those new units, some of those buildings aren't going to have parking spaces? Well, there will be minimal. I, I, that's still, I just know factual that it'll be, it, it's, we agreed upon uh, low numbers for parking spaces and uh, a large number of like cycling and spaces for uh, other mobility uh, uh, things to for people to use in the downtown Vancouver. How do you plan for something like this, Wilson? Like, you're, lots a lot of people to add to that neighbourhood. Will there be mobility? Will there be able to move around? Are you concerned about the impact that will happen? Yeah, I think Vancouver, you know, generally in the lower mainland with the growth, especially Vancouver, we're always concerned about the... Uh, the you know not just overpopulated but the density of of getting around town and hence you know we've been really working thoroughly with the city of vancouver with we're we're looking at negotiations with the federal government for transportation upgrades and we're looking at innovative ways to better meet the needs of you know the 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 high density in vancouver okay what are some of those innovative needs you think how is that going to happen yeah, so I think uh, strategically, my hands go up to our Inchicide, um Development Corporation of the nation for really hammering down the negotiations in regards to, you know, what are the needs, you know, and, uh, you know, just to re- reflect upon the service agreement we did sign, you know, with the city of Vancouver, we're looking at, you know, really not using much energy at all, but at the same time, there's a trend in regards to, how we're going to deal with the, you know, bringing in, you know, 6,000 plus units, but more people. And, you know, that's something strategically we've been working on. So I think with, with timelines amending, you know, we're we're going to be starting our first phase of the fall here. So we're really uh, looking forward to that. But at the same time, we're going to hammer down and uh, Inchikai is, done a great job in trying to address some of these uh, challenges that we do face. So what is the construction schedule like here? How quickly are things going to start to change on the site? Yeah, last week we did a a ground blessing ceremony in our uh, 
um, traditional way on the land just to start off in a good way. Um, as you know, a lot of our families um, resided there and we wanted to make sure we um, culturally uh, uh, were mindful of the sensitivity of, of the land. But also it was a great day for some of our people to go and uh, we actually brought down our families that uh, are that come from the lineages there. Um, so we also started, you know, the whole area is fenced off around phase one. So, and then some of the uh, clearing has already started. So it's very exciting to really get to this phase. But in the fall, we're going to do one more ceremony for the community and then uh, move forward in regards to uh, the first phase, which is three towers. What's it like for those families, Wilson, that you just mentioned there who have like ancestral ties to that land? Their families live there. You had to go through this very long kind of court fight to get that back. And now they're going to see it dramatically change. What's it like for them? You know, uh, it's been, you know, becoming, being one of those members as well. My great grandfather lived down there. Um, it's very grounding. It's, it's, you know, in today's context, I always say we're back on our in our own lands down in Sanok and Kitsilano. But you know, historically, we want to make sure we're you know do it in a good way. But personally, I I really feel grounded, but also empowering, empowered because uh, we're going to have that not just visibility on our own lands again in in Sanok, but uh, thriving and living and uh, have that uh, identity back in in our in our lands yeah does it feel like an end and a beginning right the end of that chapter and starting something new yeah some of our uh our our elders you know it's like a rebirth of uh our people being back on the land and and not forgetting the past but also moving forward with the next seven generations ahead of our uh people now, Wilson, will there be a process by which other, you know, other members of the community can come and see what the plans are, perhaps in a more close-up fashion? Yeah. So, you know, yeah, we're continuing to be good neighbors. We're going to be consulting. Our Inchikai group has a strategic plan of communication in regards to having uh, sessions and open sessions to meet with the local residents or anyone interested in the development or learning more about it, but also learning more about uh, the Squamish nation as well. Um, you know, we've been getting good feedback in regards to, uh, you know, reciprocating, you know, that good neighbor uh, mentality. Um, and really people are excited that, uh, you know, we'll have um, this, this project development. But I think uh, in Chicago, we'll continue to do some um, community consultation with the local residents starting and I think they're planning their next sessions in September. Right. Cause there have been a few concerns, right. And especially about using a part of Vanier park. Yeah, there's, you know, there's been a few things that have been highlighted and come across our desk for sure. Okay. So there will be reach You'll be reaching out then to some of the local residents about that. Yeah. We're, you know, we want to share just factual information. You know, there's a few concerns about the laneway growing in with going in, but, uh, which will be at the southern end of uh, Vanier Park, which is just going to be an upgrade laneway for uh, or pedestrians and cyclists and enhance the area. So it's not going, there's some misconception around going right through Vanier Park, but it's not. So, and it's going to be an upgrade green space. Okay. So there will be an opportunity then for all the residents to hear that. 
Yes, for sure. All right. I look forward to hearing more. Wilson, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's Wilson Williams, spokesperson for the Squamish Nation, talking about that big Sanok development that is happening at the uh, south end of the Barrar Bridge. Things are getting underway. First phase is three towers, and it's going to be very different. And watching this unfold is going to be a fascinating process for sure.